we'll be doing a confession prayer and a traditional communion prayer, uh, words together towards the close of the service today. But this day, I just want to say welcome, and I'm glad you're here. If anyone's a guest, thank you for being here this day. You can go to our website, and there's a way to introduce yourself to us. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. There's also a connect card in the foyer on the high table, and you can leave that with anyone you see doing anything today. And we have an introduction letter we'd like to get to you about Pilgrim and a gift as well if this is your first time here with us on this Good Friday. I'm going to invite everyone uh, to grab this uh, two-page insert that you should have received this morning's scripture reading for Good Friday. And what we're going to do, and this is a little different than maybe normal, we're going to read through uh, the two passages or two chapters in the Gospel of John. So if you flip to page four in this outline is where we will begin, and um, we'll be reading through this text here today. And you can follow along in this scripture passage. It's a bit long, so I encourage you to read along so you can stay, uh, keep, keep your mind and your heart engaged. And then I'm going to share a, a bit of a message after that as well. So we're going to look at the gospel today. And traditionally, we would stand for the gospel, but because this is two chapters, I, I stay seated, okay? Um, unless the Holy Spirit just comes over you and you need to stand and, and, and shout hallelujah, go for it. Generally speaking, in our Baptist context, that doesn't happen very often, but I don't put it past the Holy Spirit to uh, move someone in that way. So this, e this, this evening, this morning, um, I'm an immigrant to Canada. I'm still not used to morning Good Friday services, but I, uh, so if I say this evening, I mean this morning. We're in this moment. We're going to read John chapter 18, verses 1 through 1942, and it is a long stretch, so stay, find ways to stay engaged with it. But this is John's relaying of that Good Friday, that, that last uh, day of Jesus' life before, as he, as he is being crucified and preparing before that. So the Gospel of John, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought with him a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked him, Who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replied, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And again, Jesus asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you're looking for me, let these other men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus, and Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest for that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. And Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus, and since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside of the gate, and so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. 
Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing around it and warming themselves. And Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching and Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. And we said this, one of the police officers standing by struck Jesus on the face saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong, but I have spoken rightly. Why do you strike me? Then Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing there warming himself and those who were standing near the fire asked him, are you not also one of his disciples, are you? And Peter denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the cock crowed and they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews replied, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated what kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate asked him and said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth, that everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asked him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they shouted in, in reply, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas, he was a bandit. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming to him saying, Hail, hail, king of the Jews, and striking him on the face. And Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And when the chief priests and the police saw Jesus, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. But the Jewish leaders answered him and said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? And then Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. 
Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate had tried to release him, but the Jewish leadership cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside, sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. Pilate said again to the Jews, here's your king. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him, away with him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. And I do invite you to stand with me at this point if you're able and willing to. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to that place which is called the place of the skull which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. I believe that is my phone on Good Friday. (laughs) Thank God we're Baptist Anglicans. I would have just been, uh, there would have been a fourth cross on the hill. (laughs) It's my reminder to pray at 11. Apparently I didn't uh, quiet it. Many of the Jews read the inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near this city. And it was written in Hebrew in Latin and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And they said to another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see who will get it. And this was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus, where his mother and his mother's sister were Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And after this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order that scripture might be fulfilled, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he, had already, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers 
pierced his side with the spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that scripture might be fulfilled. None of my bones shall be broken. And again, another passage says they will look on the one whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the leadership, asked Pilate to let him take the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission so that he came and removed the body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby, and they laid Jesus there, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we hear this word today. Speak to our hearts. Help us to understand in some way, small or large, how history was changed in your death and your coming resurrection. So we yield to you again, Holy Spirit, this time. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if you will say amen, please be seated. I think I could just leave it at the scripture and we could move into communion, but I do want to say a few things on this Good Friday. A few things that have been on my heart and mind as we approach Good Friday, and these are the common questions I think we, we always ask when we come to remembering Jesus' crucifixion. Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? And what does this mean for my life? Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? And what does this mean for my life? If I were to zoom in on one piece of this passage we read, and there's so much here, we could preach series on these two passages. Indeed, I'm sure that series have been preached on them. But that part where we get to the very end, where Jesus receives the wine on the hyssop branch, which would have reminded the Israelites of the Passover, the original Passover, when they were told to put hyssop, uh, put the blood of lambs on hyssop and spread it over the doorpost that the angel of death might pass over their house. And so he, the Lamb of God, receives this wine, this, this wine of the new covenant that he is initiating in his own blood, but he is receiving the wine on the hyssop branch, and indeed he becomes our Passover. But the word in John 19.30, when he declares it, is finished. There are seven different phrases that lead to the cross that we hear of Jesus, and this is, this is definitely one of the key ones. In the beginning of John, in John chapter 1, and so John is relaying this, he was a disciple of Jesus, in his biography, ancient biography of Jesus in John chapter 1, when he first sees Jesus, he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and now all the way at the end of his earthly journey, just about here on the cross, we see this same thing, that Jesus indeed is the Lamb who's taking on the brokenness forward and backwards in time. This statement, it is finished, it comes from the, the root word is telos uh, and teleo to complete, to bring something to fullness, to bring something to its, to its final point. It's accomplished something. And there is something that's happened here in this last word. It is finished. I want to pause for a second and I'll come back to that, that thought in just a moment here. 
But when we talk about Good Friday and what Jesus did on the cross, Christians have wrestled with various views or theories, what we call of atonement. And if you want a Sunday school definition of atonement, many of you probably heard this before, it means at one meant, literally how it's spelled. For those of us that can't spell and put our letters, reverse them all the time, at one meant. I don't know how many of you, but I still have to spell Wednesday, Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's just me. All of you are like, oh my goodness, yeah. But there's a few words like that, atonement, at one minute. That he is making us, he is doing something. Something is changing on the cross in creation, in all that is connected with everything that's part of everything that's been created by God, including us. That something is shifting in this. And Christians have generally fallen into several different camps on how to see the atonement and have these views of the atonement. And none of these views do full justice to the cross. In fact, I would encourage you as part of your expression, religious expression and your discipleship, to use images of the cross, uh, to to maybe even uh, use different pictures of Jesus' crucifixion, to begin to engage with your mind and your body and your spirit together, not simply reading about it, not simply reading different maybe theology about it, but also the experience of uh, trying to enter into visually and mentally what happened on the cross. Fleming Rutledge said this in her great work on the crucifixion. She said, let us think in two overall categories, and I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing again on Good Friday, atonement and deliverance. The two categories taken together encompass in one way or the other the the multifarious biblical imagery as fairly as any categories could. Taking the scripture as a whole, considering the Old Testament and the four gospels together with the epistles and Revelation, We see two things happening in the cross of Christ. Number one, God's definitive, definite action in making atonement for sin. The cross is understood as sacrifice, sin offering, guilt offering, expiation, substitution. I'm not going to define all those words. You can look them up later, but you'll get the idea here pretty quick. Related images or motifs are the scapegoat, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Handel's Messiah, Isaiah 53, is, is uh, in, in song, well put in song. So on the cross, God's definite action and making atonement for sin. Different ways of talking about this include penal substitutionary atonement or substitutionary atonement, that God is doing something with your and my sin on the cross. Our brokenness, our destructiveness as individuals and as a society and societies and cultures, that in the cross, God is doing something to take on that brokenness, that forgiveness and reconciliation can happen, that new things can break out instead of vicious cycles of retaliation. So on the cross, Jesus is giving us the power and the tools over sin in our lives and others that we might break out of simply trying to keep the cycle going of this person does this thing, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and new bitterness and new brokenness and new, uh, new desire for vengeance. There is a way that we can break out of these cycles in what is happening in the cross. And the second thing that is, she emphasizes here, and again, there's other words for this, but I'll, I'll use her words here, God's decisive victory over the alien powers of sin and death. Fleming puts it this way, the cross is understood as victory over the powers, capital P powers, spiritual forces of wickedness, human sinfulness made large in social structures as well. So both demonic spirits and also those things that when we give our spiritual say-so into brokenness and we pile it up and we make destructive institutions that do injustice, these powers, both demonic and human-formed larger entities, victory over the powers and deliverance from bondage, slavery, and oppression 
Related themes in the, are that this idea of the new exodus in Christ, the harrowing of hell on Holy Saturday, and the main concept of Jesus as victor, Christus victor. So on the cross, there are two main categories that I think summarize a lot of the different views of what happens. It's this idea of God standing in our place, substitutionary atonement, make dealing with our sins, and also the victory over sin as an alien power and, and death, Christus victor. And in the early church, they emphasized much more this idea of Christus victor. And over time, many Protestants, we've emphasized a lot more of the substitutionary atonement, but both of them do uh, speak to what's going on in the cross. There are ranges of theories about what happened on the cross, but one that illuminate truth, and no one theory can reduce all that God accomplished on the cross. I like how Samuel Therene says this. He says in the Psalms and their meaning, not the man who is lost, and he means men and women, but not the man who is lost, but the man who is saved can understand that he's a sinner. The cross can function as an awakening moment in our lives, a light that reveals to us that the power we are bound under, but we don't truly understand sin's power until we begin to experience some level of freedom of it. We don't understand the water we're swimming in until we're taken out of it, at least for a moment, and begin to see there's another way of being human. But here's the good news. One of the things God does is he allows us the freedom because love requires freedom. But he also gives us the ability to see that there's another way and the cross can awaken us to that. Sin is an infectious disease. Now I can preach more on substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor, but I, uh, I want to move towards, towards the end here. Note, I bring lots of notes with me. Don't ever be scared if you see a stack of notes. It doesn't mean I'm literally going to preach through all of the notes that I bring to the pulpit. Uh, but here we go. So these two views of the cross are brought together. And I think it's important that we understand both of them and in some ways that God deals with the sins of the world. And this can be hard for people because we may say, well, God can just forgive sins, straight up forgive sins. Absolutely, he can. And in the Middle Ages, the church began to wrestle more with this sense, well, maybe God's honor needs to be dealt with or maybe the sense of justice and maybe the cross also deals with the sense of honor and justice. And I struggle with that view a bit, but let me do the most compelling view to me about this idea of the substitutionary atonement for our sins. If we believe that you and I are created in the image and likeness of God, that every man, woman, child is created in God's image and likeness, and when we hurt, wound, make mistakes, egregiously sin uh, other people who have been made in the image and likeness of God, we are sinning against something divine and eternal that God has placed into every human being. That there is a place for justice. There's a sense in which, and sometimes in Western culture, we can get a little too cozy with the sense that, oh, the world's not really that bad. But in fact, talk to someone who's been through a war. Talk to Ukrainians displaced. Talk to uh, the Christians who are fleeing their homeland right now uh, from mainland China, trying to find a country to take them in. Definitely sure of death if they go back because of their protests. Talk to those folks. And there's a sense that, is there any justice, ultimate justice in the world? And this is one of the things that the cross points to, that in God, God took on the ugliness of all our sin forward and backwards in time and exposed it. Now, we want some sense of justice for sure, but ultimately God says, I'm going to take on that because there is no human that can pay the price when we hurt and wound one another. Ultimately, when we sin against one another, we are destroying or marring the image of God in another, and only God can actually atone or take that on. So 
I begin to have a little bit of openness towards this fullness of substitutionary atonement, that all of the darkness that humans have done against one another ultimately is against God because God has created each person, your neighbor, each person in his image and likeness. And when we do things that are destructive towards one another, we are destroying or working at destroying the image of God. But God will not have that. God will give us freedom, but he's also dealt with the consequences of our destructive, unjust actions on the cross. And so when we see Jesus mangled, bloody, Mel Gibson, think about that whole movie, body on the cross and the crown of thorns, it's not simply there for us to have some voyeuristic experience. It's for us to understand that when we harm or wound or marginalize or, or dehumanize another human being, we are crucifying God's creation. But God is so good and he loves us so much that he believes that love was worth the risk because love can create something greater in relationship with one another and relationship with God. And so God deals with it on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has taken on our woundedness. And so this Good Friday, we remember that. But it's not enough just to start with human sin. How did it go awry? God created risks. He created spiritual beings that have misused their power. And sin in some ways is not God's intention. God did not desire for us to live under the reign of death. And yet he risked it and we entered into it. But the powers that had also misused their freedom need to be dealt with. And so the cross is not just victory for us humans, not just victory for you and me, not just victory for our cultures and society, but also for the creation, for the planet, for the cosmos, for every spiritual being. And in this, he dethrones the powers that have misapplied the power that he has given them. And that may be harder for some of us to wrestle with in our mind, but the worldview, the cosmology of the New Testament tells us we are in a spiritual war zone and that God has triumphed over the powers in the cross and yet we live in between the ultimate uh, last battle and there's many little battles before the final end of all things. And in this, this cross, Jesus makes things right and he begins to set in motion the kingdom of God. In the cross, the covenant is brought to its fullness, but the kingdom of God is launched in newness through when we band together and we become followers of Jesus and follow his way in obedience. We show another way of being human against the powers, whether they be corporate, political, spiritual powers, that there's another way, a decentered way of living. Christus Victor speaks of the victory over the hostile powers, death and works that are hostile to God. You can read John chapter uh, 1 John chapter 3 talks a lot about this. Hebrews 2, Christ took on humanity that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Well, let me get to the end here. I want to come back finally to the word, it is finished. Would you say it with me? It is finished. It is finished. Walter Brueggemann states, it is finished is not a statement of defeat or resignation. In fact, it is God's victory declaration in the weakness, Paul says, the foolishness of the cross, the scandalousness of the cross, that in that something is actually initiated. On Good Friday before Easter, Jesus declares his victory. He declares his glorification as he takes his last breath in the body before the resurrection happens. He declares, it is finished. Now, the resurrection vindicates that it is finished, so we know what is finished. But before we get there, his declaration, it looks like a visible defeat. It looks like the empire has won. It looks like the powers have won. It looks like all of the forces of injustice and sin and simply the idea that might makes right has won the day. But Jesus knew better and said, it is finished. It's a victory. It points deliberately back 
to the Old Testament that the, the folks there would have known as only known as the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 2, after six days of creation, when God is initiating this, this world that we live in as it is now, it tells us at sundown on the sixth day, God saw that it was good and said, it is finished. He overcame chaos, we're told in Genesis, and rested as the king of creation, a new creation. In Exodus 40, after the tabernacle for God's presence to be among God's people was being built, Moses said, it is finished. There is a place of communion and resting place for God's presence amongst the people. And in Joshua 19, when the land of promise had been distributed to the tribes, Joshua could report, it is finished, we have a place. The three great achievements in Israel's memory that would have stuck out and maybe would have resonated with those early followers of Jesus is creation, the defeat of chaos, the tabernacle, the defeat of the absence of God's presence. God is now with us and amongst us, foreshadowing Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and the promised land, the defeat of homelessness. God cares about our embodiment as well. At each time, the new surge of human well-being and flourishing, blessed creation, God's presence among us and homeland were offered. And so now on Good Friday is another victory. Jesus practiced suffering, love, compassion, forgiveness, mercies, generosity, and death does not have the final word. This, my friends, is a two-part service. The second part is on Sunday. Jesus practiced suffering, love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, generosity, and death is being robbed of its power. The Roman Empire, all empires that depend on muscle and militarism is on trial and it is ultimately defeated. In fact, we are here today, but the empire of Rome is not here today. For indeed, the powers cannot destroy God's love. There is another mystery in the cross. There is the power of weakness that reveals that the God's way of working has always been cruciform. It is the third quarter in the game. Death will continue to compete for a while, but it has lost. It will not win in the end. So what does this mean for us as we move to close today? It means that death's power is lessened, that the sting is not final. It means that guilt and old wounds of shame are voided in the cross. It means we don't have to operate constantly out of fear and loss and defeat because God has taken that on. And that God's strange new world is coming at us. And your worth and your dignity is not in danger. And you don't need to be right or have your way all of the time. That is not how it needs to be. But rather, you are precious in His sight. He died for you, for us, and for all. And we are free to focus on God's spirit at work instead of simply ourselves, our status, and our security. We can care about others in new ways that change both of us. Interestingly, before Jesus finishes in the Gospel of John, and we'll talk a little more about this on Sunday, he says this, peace be with you. When he comes back, the risen Christ, give you a little foretaste since we experience this again and again, peace be with you. Don't be wrapped up in anxiety. When Jesus begins to finish his last words in the Gospel of John, after he appears, he says, feed my sheep to Peter, care for those that need care. And finally, he says, follow me, do what I do, go where you had not thought to go. Go where your parents with their old fears or others did not want to go in Christ or otherwise. And all the pain of Good Friday will be turned into joy. 
So this Good Friday, I invite you to reflect again on the death of Jesus Christ and the many different ways we can come to the cross. And maybe you're here today and you are living under a, a bondage, a load of anxiety, of shame, of fear, of guilt. I don't know. But I want you to know that Jesus has died on the cross so you don't have to carry that load and that you can walk in life, in newness of life. You can choose different ways because his grace, his work has empowered you. For he has taken on all of the sins of the world. He has been the Lamb of God who's taken on the sins of the world. He has surely borne our griefs and known our sorrows. And by his stripes, we are indeed healed and made new. In fact, the early church read all of the Old Testament again through the lens of Jesus. They reread the whole thing as pointing to Christ. And you can know that the powers do not have the final word. They are being exposed on the cross for their weakness. For if they are truly powerful, they would not need to crucify anyone. But God, who is ultimately secure in who he is, even lets us kill him. What we fail to recognize is what is in him is greater than all that is in the world. And on the third day, he rises again. For this love cannot be destroyed. It defeats death itself. Death is swallowed up. It is defeated. Death itself dies. Well, stand with me as we pray this afternoon. Almost afternoon. Still morning. Lord, on this Good Friday, we come to you once again and we remember your sacrifice on the cross. And we thank you that you have cared for us or else where it says in the New Testament that you have purchased for yourself people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And we are told one day that your church, not just our church, but all the church will be gathered when you come again at a great wedding banquet, the Feast of the Lamb. And Lord, we thank you that you are the one who draws and calls us. And I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would make Jesus real and known to each person here. And then if someone needs to take that next step, they would take that next step of saying yes to you or at least begin the next question that they wrestle with. But Lord, thank you that you send your grace ahead and enable us to reply and to respond to your love. May this Holy Week weekend be a time of conversion and new life and recommitment for some in this place, I pray. As we once again enter into the mystery of the cross the scandal of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, and yet it is the path of life. Thank you, Lord, for your suffering with us and for us. We want to become like you so in your death so we may become like you in your resurrection. For as Irenaeus said, you became what you were not so that we might become what we are not. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to enter into that spiritual mystery today in Jesus' name. Amen.